In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews Yuan Semple, an author, blogger, thinker, digital transformation expert, and professional truck driver. Here's a snippet of their conversation. And yes, that took a degree of orchestration. And it's nobody saying you just let everybody do everything they want all the time by, by any stretch. But equally, if given a bit of confidence and, and people believe the best in them, we are capable as individuals of doing incredible stuff. And if also we can get the gubbins out of our head about reporting and, you know, the, the, the management class has this weirdly distorted idea that if it wasn't for them, we would all run amok. And, it, and it's just not true. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Yuan Semple has been a leader and an influencer in the ever-changing field of digital technology for more than two decades. An early adopter of social media, he implemented one of the world's first enterprise social network systems inside the BBC. He also ran BBC DigiLab, a department whose purpose was to help the BBC understand new technologies across the range of its activities and make better decisions about their use and implementation. Yuan left the BBC in 2006 to establish his own consultancy and has subsequently worked around the world with an amazing range of organizations, including BP, the World Bank, the European Commission, and Volvo. His work with these organizations has been to help stretch their thinking about digital transformation in all of its forms and to ensure that they end up doing the right things for the right reasons. Ewan is the author of Organizations Don't Tweet, People Do, The Manager's Guide to the Social Web. And it's my great pleasure to have him on the podcast today. Ewan, you are primarily known as a digital transformation advisor and expert, but you also write a very thoughtful blog. And for a while you drove trucks. What was it about driving trucks that appealed to you? And why is it important for writers to do things that seem at least superficially to have nothing to do with writing? Gosh, interesting question. I mean, I had always, I love traveling. I love long distance motorbike rides in the past and uh, long car drives, more than happy to, to just drive the whole way to the south of France in one go if I get the chance. So I like that. I had worked with Volvo a number of times in their staff events where they put state-of-the-art trucks in the foyer and just lusted after these great, big, massive, amazing technology, you know? And so I put two and two together. That uh, was one reason. The other reason was I was becoming increasingly, uh, frankly, cynical about the whole world of consulting and trying to change the world and working with big organizations that would rather be tinkering than transforming. And... Uh, couldn't face, and that was drying up, partly probably due to my lack of enthusiasm and possibly other reasons, but I couldn't face doing a real job, you know, sitting in an office with a manager staring over their laptop at me. Um, so I thought, right, well, I'm going to get my class one, as they call it here, license. So that entitles me to drive, well, class one and class two. Class two is a rigid truck over seven and a half tonnes. So I've driven up to 32-ton tankers and stuff like that. Um, and then an articulated truck is the class one, um, which I sadly never got to do in earnest because most of my job was work was through an agency. So I was doing what they call multi-drop 
in and out of the city of London to building sites, delivering steel piping and stuff like that, and uh, and and mortar mix to silos in building sites. And I had to wear masks and goggles and couple up massive big sort of eight-inch diameter pipes and blast things with a compressor. Uh, and wow. that was what it actually got too much. I mean, the driving bit I was fine with. It was all the faffing about either end that got to me. How are, how are the seats in those trucks? That's what I... Uh, seats? I, I yeah, how are the seats? The seating. That's the problem I'm having with driving right now. In a, my, as I feel as though every, you know, my cars are getting increasingly uncomfortable. Well, so they, they spend a lot of money on the seats and they're incredibly adjustable. Um, but another downside of being an agency driver is I was driving different trucks all the time. And it's not always obvious how these things work. Mm. So I set off in one pretty big truck in the dark, in the rain, oh. conscious of the time getting on. So I thought, I, better, I, better. I wasn't sure how the seat worked, but I thought I better just set off. And so for the first five minutes, I was either down here or I was way up here. And this, <laughs> this seat's pogoing for the first five minutes. Can I work out how to lock it? You know? So yes, com- comfortable seats if you can work out how to use them. Oh, good. I also, I fly a little airplanes, you know, Cessna 152s, oh, cool. 172s. And the seating, you learn that lesson um, fairly quickly, which is make sure you got the seat adjustment thing down yeah. before you take yeah. off. Um, be, I remember, well, no, just a story. I was taking off from Lincoln Park Airport in uh, New Jersey, and uh, and I had not uh, properly secured the seat. And so as soon as I put in full power, I wound up in the back seat. And let me tell you, that, that was quite an experience. No good. No good. So, no good. so, as, yeah. so as we're swapping seat stories, this point yeah. up for the podcast. But, um, so one of the things we've done, we've ordered a very small motorhome like a sort of mm. car-sized motorhome. It's, it, the point is it will get into multi-storey car parks. You can park anywhere. It'll get under the barriers they increasingly put up in car parks at the coast and stuff like that. Mm. But it's still got a fold-down bed that takes two people. It's got a cooker, a sink, and a pop-up roof. Um, so we can't wait to get hold of that. But the reason we went down that route was we were looking at a Volkswagen California camper van, which are hugely expensive because of the brand and the iconography. You know, it's, it's such an iconic truck vehicle. And we were literally on the point of spending a lot of money the next day. And I overnight thought, hang on, I've never sat in the driver's seat with the roof down. I can't sit in any VW camper van because all of my height is in my back. And I was having to stoop like this. So we just had to say, well, that's it. Can't do it. Wow. It's so ironically, this much smaller vehicle gives me much more headroom. So, uh, Ewan, one of your blog posts is titled Off Kilter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the post looks at this idea that deep down, we all know when we're doing something wrong and we all know when we're doing something right. Mm-hmm. So deep down, we know the difference between right and wrong. Why do we need customs and religions and rules and laws? Because we forget. <laughs> um, yes, it's interesting. I remember once a friend of mine who was in social media stuff um, decided to become a priest and went through the whole training and all the fancy outfits and we went for a walk together across this muddy field in the rain and I remember that was the point at which he was trying to convince me that without the Ten Commandments and without religion we wouldn't know right from wrong and I had to say well where do you think they came from you know they're not sorry to disappoint you but they did not come out of a cloud somewhere or on a tablet or whatever they were just a, a an articulation of what over millennia had become apparent common sense to people 
as to how to live without causing yourself or other people stress. Uh, I know the, over the last few years I've become increasingly interested in Buddhist philosophy, which is they talk about skillful means. And so it's not about somebody in an institution or higher up some sort of hierarchy or the ultimate hierarchy of the of the God sitting on his throne, whatever. But it's just about pragmatic common sense to behave in these ways will cause yourself or others suffering. Um, now, we, we need to remind ourselves of that. And I think the reason we need to remind ourselves of that is that we get sucked into, you know, this ego that we're born with, this sense of a fragile self that needs defending, that perceives the whole world as out to get them, um, starts to justify to itself, partly on the behaviour of others around it, it's just pretty damn unhealthy and unpleasant and unnecessary. Um, now, I think it's like so many things, like that we have been enculturated into a sense of dependency and, you know, infantilization that, that's so pervasive. And, this, and it's, we see it all around things like morality and around sexuality and whatever else. You know, if, I do, if, if somebody doesn't keep a, a check on me, I will run them up. You know, and the fact that you've been trained and made to think that way is what makes you actually dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're uh, we're socialized in weird ways, uh, and and media media plays a role in that. Although, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and and forgive me for this, Mike, as an American, but I mean, I was saying to the kids the other day there, it's such a shame that Hollywood became so dominant because your normalization as a society of guns sort of became acceptable in our films and our, our mythologies, if you like. You know, French cinema and German cinema never had any of that, you know? Um, and the fact that nobody seems to be able to make a film without some, you know, even a cartoon, somebody's pointing a gun at somebody else, even if they're making a joke out of it, you know? And that that's that increasingly strikes me as odd. So with this, uh, I just want to say also, thank you so much for using the phrase off-kilter. I just love that, off-kilter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Well, it's, it's funny because, I mean, the, again, the Buddhist thing, they, they, they call suffering, or the word dukkha has been translated as suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm much, more, I'm much more conscious these days of it. So, meh, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just not right. It's, it's just something niggly. It's not, this isn't, it's not suffering in the sense of woe is me and Christian ideas of martyrdom. It's, it's more, eh, it's, it's just not quite right. If we already know the difference between right and wrong, why do we need to be told what to do? And, and why do we need authority figures telling us what to do? Well, I don't, I don't think we do. Um, okay. So I, uh, alongside my reading about Buddhism, I did a fair bit around anarchism and, and the writing of people like Kropotkin and, and the others who were very Oh, thoughtful. yeah, yeah. You know, that's one of my favorite books. I'm so happy you made well, it. I knew. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Frankly, I think even things like in the UK, the response to COVID this might sound like a big leap, but when I got both of my jobs, I ended up in tears at the amazingness of people and the fact that local volunteers largely and the NHS largely, and a sort all to do with politicians, managed to sort out an incredible response to this thing and, and, and all the detail and the data collection and the parking and the signage. You know, it's just, and I thought people are amazing. And yes, that took a degree of orchestration and it's nobody saying you just let everybody do everything they want all the time by by any stretch but equally if given a bit of confidence and, and people believe the best in them we are capable as individuals of doing incredible stuff and if also we can get the gubbins out of our head about reporting and 
you know, the, the, the management class has this weirdly distorted idea that if it wasn't for them, we would all run amok. And, it, and it's just not true in, in almost any organization I've ever worked in. And in fact, very often people got things done despite that attitude. And we've talked about servant leadership and all this stuff for goodness knows how long. But I think there's still deeply embedded institutional mindsets that assume that authority is necessary. And that comes that goes back to the religion thing that we were talking about earlier. You know, if you if you can't trust yourself enough to make decisions, but have to have somebody threatening to send you to hell if you get the wrong make the wrong decision, you know, that's a bad start to begin with. Um, but I, I, you know, I think the idea, even in, you know, I was thinking about this in technology terms, the fact that we've ended up with a very passive population in terms of technology, and that's largely because IT was mostly, you know, technology was mostly at work. IT didn't want to faff around with messing, you know, people messing things up for them. So they kept it really tightly locked down. They didn't allow people to play with their computers. Um, you know, thank God for the iPhone, because it got people to actually get their hands on, start to use tools and begin to realize what they could do with them. Um, so again, in the technology world, I think that assumption that if you didn't keep people under check and control, things became worse. I, you know, I understand that mindset. My dad was the head of IT for a big local authority in the 70s and he had to fight all sorts of battles. But I do think the assumption that without some form of authority, of authority we misbehave is, is, is just basically wrong. So, Ewan, in another of your posts, you do, you look at the role of management in modern organizations. And on the one hand, we have, you know, uh, sadly elevated management to a science and yet, at the same time, we still have problems finding good managers and becoming good managers ourselves. I knew that that was the when I look back at my career, the thing that I regret the most is how long it took me to become to develop empathy, to be honest with you. So why, why is that? Well, it's funny because I often tell the story <coughs> excuse me, of my first sort of real managerial role where I, had, where I had responsibility for about 30 well even that phrase responsibility for you know they were responsible for themselves they didn't need me to be responsible for them and and the lunacy of me assuming that role with guys who were old enough to be my dad who'd been working in the BBC since before I was born you know struck me as utter lunacy and to protect myself from the horror I started wearing a tie and talking funny you know I, I put on the armour I started uh, management bollocks, and then I thought, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait a minute! This this way lies madness." And and of course, a lot of people don't realise that. Keep going and end up mad and thinking they're in charge and hanging their hat on this title that they've earned and thinking that makes them different and special, and then being terrified of being called on it. You know, I mean, it it's easy to be cynical, I, I know, but it's more of a sadness because it's not making them happy either. And I, and I think it's partly. You know, these things go in waves. It's partly the nature of, frankly, again, the, the American corporation, which was something that, that, that became the norm in, in organizational life, which wasn't necessarily the case in, in other countries to begin with. And the, as you say, that well, I, I often talk about the perils of professionalization, um, mm. because as soon as you become a professional communicator, it becomes an end in itself and you stop truly communicating. Or if you become a a professional HR person, you stop caring about people and care about <laughs> systems instead, you know. And, and becoming a professional manager puts this barrier up where you're somehow making yourself different from the people that are just trying to get stuff done. And and you're right, the empathy thing, you can tell when you have a, air quotes, good manager because they're there when you need them. They, they give you a reason to bother. 
uh, and, and and pick you up when you've fallen over. And that and that's kind of all you need. The thing you don't need is them to tell you what to do most of the time. Uh, finally, let's talk about what it's like not having a job, at least not in the traditional sense of what it used to mean to have a job. And I'm, I'm referring here to your post titled on not having a job. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny because I, I, I'm in a very fortunate situation. I realise that. I mean, my wife's uh, enjoying having had the kids and brought them up, going back into the workplace and achieving a level of seniority and, impl- and, and influence that she's always wanted but never quite got to. So she's doing really well. That, that helps. Um, I got to 60 last year and the BBC pension, although partial, uh, kicked in. Um, I, I left early, but it still you know, helps. And also the background knowledge that if everything went completely wrong, I could just go back to driving and we'd be okay. And the combination of all of those has meant, of that and lockdown, has meant that I've been very happy to just sit in my garden. And and, and that's it, you know? I mean, I'm not even, I'm trying, I'm even trying not to think. <laughs> and and it's funny when people say, what are you, what are you doing these days? And I just go, nothing. <laughs> and it's funny how disconcerting they find that. Well, surely, surely you can't just be doing nothing. No, no, really. It's cool. And loving it, right? And loving oh, it. Yeah. Well, but you should do, yeah. do it. But uh, you do refer to it in your uh, in your post as uh, the sense of being in Never Never Land, yeah. um, which is, wow, this is great. Uh, but I, I do worry, and maybe this is just, what is the right word uh, here? I'm being uh, patronizing. Um, you know, I worry about people who have not spent their whole lives, <laughs> you know, writing or thinking about nothing. At any rate, so help me out here. What is it? How How is the rest of the world going to get used to not working uh, you know, eighty-hour yeah. week jobs. It, wor- it worries me, Mike. Um, back in the days when I still commuted in and out to London on, on occasions, and I tried really hard not to do it, but I, I fell into it once in a while. Sitting on a train full of people in suits, traveling into the glass and steel buildings to do what you know, and, and, and genuinely thinking, what on earth are we going to do with you in twenty years' time when those administrative, bureaucratic, you know, legal financial, medical, so many jobs. And yes, I know technology has been oversold and undelivered in so many different ways, but clearly I think if you're doing something that's rote and repetitive, the potential for technology to just eliminate that need is very high at the moment, or will be in the next 10, 20 years' time. I totally agree. We need to think about how we help people adjust, because going back to the managerial question, you know, I had a relative who, who was an HR manager, and was made redundant. He was working for small engineering firms and three of them went belly up. So he was made redundant three times in a row. And each time he saw himself as an out-of-work HR manager rather than a capable person who could do anything, um, like drive a truck. But it's not the technology, it's us. It's how we're using the technology. And I think, you know, human nature being what it is, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully sort it out and begin to use it to greater collective effect. That was my conversation with Yuan Semple, author, blogger, truck driver, observer of life's details, and all-around wonderful guy. I always enjoy my conversations with Yuan, and I look forward to speaking with him again soon. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention, and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.